news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks segment. We are going to shimmy our way into today's episode and Carly will read our first query letter. Dear Ms. Waters and Ms. Lyra, Melancholic Yellows is a 70,000-word literary fiction novel about how 21-year-old Howard University student Casper learns to accept herself in the world and as a woman. It's a building's Roman of sorts that can be compared to themes of the bell jar and the hours. Casper hears that the world will end on May 21st, 2011. She is relieved. Casper Woods would rather the world end than face her memories. She has only told her uncle about what happened. He died as a result of confronting one of her attackers. When he dies, the public mask behind which she shields the scars of those memories begins to crumble. Everyone starts to see her pain. Her relationships with others get tested as they demand she be the carefree woman they thought they befriended. The exposure and those demands, especially in the face of her continued silence, cause her to experience increasing moments of dispossession. Casper can let the past define her and confront the knowledge of what happened or cling to her false self just until the world ends. I am a Black alumna of Howard where I majored in African diaspora history and minored in English. After serving as a Peace Corps volunteer, I also graduated from law school and currently work as a civil rights attorney in Boston. 
Boston. I spend my days writing creative constitutional briefs and improving food recipes. I can so far make only one type of pie, but this is my first novel. It borrows aspects of my past and journey. I share with you Casper's story because I am excited to hear your thoughts as I enjoy listening to the podcast. Thank you so much for providing writers this opportunity to learn and own this process. Please note that I have queried Cecilia Lira separately. Thank you for your time, Jessica J. Trigger warning. This novel deals with issues of sexual abuse, childhood assault, and mental illness. Awesome, Colleen. Thank you. All right, Cece, what did you think of the query letter? This is a well-written query letter. As I was reading it, especially in the first paragraph, I had a note about the, the listener can't see the query letter, but the line that says, Casper learns to accept herself in the world. Herself is separate. So her one word, self another word. And I wondered if that was intentional, if she wanted to isolate the self and, you know, perhaps think about our unconscious self, our, 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 our subconscious self. And when being experimental with spelling, I would advise authors caution because sometimes agents might just assume it's a typo. And some agents are a little militant when it comes to typos. I didn't, it didn't bother me at all. It got me curious, but it's something to think about when querying widely. I love the first line of the plot, which is Casper hears the world will end on, and then there's a date, right? And then the she is relieved. So I love that. It got my attention. It hooked me. My only question is, when is this taking place? Like, how far away from this date? Because I don't know. Is it like she's 21 years old, right? So it's sad either way. It's it's intriguing either way. But is are we like three months from this date? Two days? Like, depending on how far away we are, this becomes a ticking clock sort of novel, right? Like a race against time almost, at least in her mind, because the power of the mind is a powerful thing. So so I would want to know that detail. And then when it comes to the, you know, to the longer plot paragraph, the one that starts with Casper Woods would rather the world end than face her memories. I began to see a little bit of problems with specificity. So for example, everyone starts to see her pain. I was like, can we be more specific? Because we already know she's in pain, right? Like she, she's relieved the world is going to end and, and, and he doesn't want to live with her memories. Could it be shame? Is that what's under her pain? Is it regret? Like, I want to know specifically, dig, dig, dig into that trauma, and I want to know what the root emotion is. I'm assuming, and this is this is awful because it's indicative of the world we live in, I'm assuming that she was hurt by, by a man. I'm assuming that, you know, someone sexually assaulted her or something, and how someone reacts to that says a lot about their psyche. So, you know, if it's depending on your culture, depending on your background, depending on, 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 on how people frame these things around you on the time, right? Like, is this 2010? Is this 2000? Is this 1999? I don't know. It would be a different emotion that she would be experiencing and it would be unique to each person. And I really want to know what that root emotion is. So I do want to know if it's shame or regret or, or, or anything else. Her relationship with others gets tested. And I'm like, who are these others? I need more specificity. And she does tell me the next sentence that are her friends, but there's really no other name other than her. And there's no specific relationship mentioned. So I felt that this might be a novel where everything is quiet, which is, you know, not necessarily a problem since it's literary. Although we have spoken a lot about how, you know, even literary novels um, can, can be elevated with strong hook and still have a lot of plot, but I didn't get enough sense of what, what's at stake with this paragraph. And that is the plot paragraph's job. I, I even like the fact that she mentions her continued silence. I'm like, is this a literal silence thing? Like she's refusing to speak at all or like silence based on specific, specific questions that are being asked. 
So I, I guess I wanted to know more details about her life and not just like the very big picture, the world will end thing. Yeah. So those are my thoughts. And I really, really liked the author paragraph. Yeah. I'm like, I'm sending my address. Send pie. Okay. Carly, what was your take on it? I echo a lot of the same sentiments. Just starting at the top, I had a note that said, even literary fiction needs a hook. And so we talked about last week about, you know, the real estate at the top of a query letter. And this one, you know, we start with Casper learns to accept herself in the world and as a woman, right? But this is very vague, very loosey-goosey. This could mean literally anything as, you know, half the population identifies as a woman. So I'm not really understanding on any level like what this book is about. And so I really do think we need some sort of hook. And even if it's a quiet hook, that is fine, right? But we just need to know something more than this. The comps, the bell jar and the hours, um, not only are these huge comps, um, they're also old comps, right? So I had a little bit of a hard time thinking about this in a contemporary sense as an agent. My job is to sell this in a contemporary market. So I'm just not really getting a sense of how I could position this just based on these comps. I also want to know when this book is taking place, because if we know the world is ending, it matters if the, the world is ending in three months or three years or 30 years, right? Like it matters. So we do need to know when this book is taking place. I also agreed with Cece. We're figuring out a lot of like very big spatial things kind of happening in this this character's life, but we don't really know what's happening on a scene level or a even a like inciting incident level, right? Because a lot of this is quite vague about, are we going to start with the scene with her being attacked? Are we going to start with the uncle dying? Are we going to start with you know, her having these moments of confusion. Like, I'm just not really sure where we're going with this book yet. And again, quiet novels, nothing wrong with quiet novels. There is a place and a time and a category for a quiet novel, but I do have to kind of know what's going on. I really think the interesting part of this book and the hook is this world ending, right? This is, that is the hook, right? This is something that is happening in the future. And for a quiet novel to have something we're working towards and this kind of pressure cooker of a time situation that's great. So to me, that's the hook, right? We have a character who's gone through a personal drama of some sort and the world is ending. And how do they feel about that, right? They're relieved. They're relieved that the world is ending. So I, I think all of that is the hook. And then I just want to know a little bit more what's happening in the actual book. And I agree with CC author bioparagraph is great. And, uh, and I, you know, we talked about trigger warnings before and I thought that was, that was well done. Just my take on that. When I first read the query letter, I, when it said her place in the world and as a woman, accepting herself as a woman, I thought this was going to be a transgender story. And that was my initial take on it. And then that didn't appear to be the case. So, you know, you, you just want to guard against those kinds of misunderstandings as well. Okay, Cece, what did you think of the opening pages? Before I began, in on the pages themselves, I want to take a minute to talk about readability. So there's two things here. One, and this is the most important one, be careful with long texts in italics. There's a really, really long scene in Garamond. That's a really cool font. I like Garamond. But when you italicize that, like I had to change the font, like this is word so I could do it, but I couldn't read it. Like my eyes were hurting. It makes the reading experience really difficult. And I never recommend long texts in italics. Never, never. If you want to separate a scene from another, like maybe it's a dream, for example, then you pick a different font, but don't do it in italics. It's too much on our eyes. Another thing that's the second readability point is writers who are submitting your stuff, you must submit five pages double spaced. 
five pages single spaced, it's too hard on our eyes. And we're not, all we're going to do is we're going to double space it, right? We're going to reformat it. And then we're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to stop at five pages double spaced because that's what's fair to everyone. Like we want to be fair to the people who are following the rules. So please, everyone listening, please, please, please um, be mindful of this. Okay. Off to the pages themselves. This is very literary right? We have a scene that we don't know if it's a memory or a dream or maybe both. And then we have the protagonist essentially waking up. My startle out, out of sleep is, is, is the language used, which is really beautiful. And she gets her period. And we know this because she says, fuck you, Eve, I moan. Um, and then she grabs a tampon. And I thought that was really funny. And I was thinking to myself, what about God who cursed her? Like, it's not Eve's fault, right? But but it's funny. And I, and, and I like that. And I, or maybe like Adam, who like couldn't take responsibility for his food choices, because that's that's on him. But I thought that was really hilarious. It was a really good way to start this novel. Being is, and I am 100% sure this is intentional, clipped. The sentences are short. It's like she's cutting the word, the sentences with scissors, and you can feel the move of scissors. And it works really well because it's the style, it's the genre. I don't know that it's the novel for me because while I do love literary fiction, and I do, I need to feel connected to a character. And I wasn't feeling connected to this character here. I, I started to think about like why it was, you know, it's hard, it's hard to diagnose it in only five pages because there's a lot of emotion here. There's, there's a scene where she... I move forward among the other somber-faced people dressed in the shades of white, stopping when I reach the circle of my three sisters. And then we have, you know, the character describes a little bit of what's going on. And it's really sad. Like her grandma stands alone amongst the ghosts of the long gone. Like it's beautiful, right? Like there's a lot of beautiful things here. And there were specific questions that the protagonist was asking themselves that I started asking myself. They're, They're in a funeral and, you know, we get questions like, did they know who... Who knew who my uncle was and did they profit? So I do have a lot of questions in the sense of vague questions, but they're not connected to the character. And I think that's part of the problem here. I want to know specifically why the protagonist matters in the scene. And I'm getting her interiority and I'm getting her descriptions of what's going on, but I don't see a specific connection. And I guess having read the query letter, I, I'm assuming that the uncle, this is the uncle who confronted her attacker. So it does make a little bit of sense, but I still felt that it could be fleshed out a bit more and just lean into more specificity. There was a lot of elegant use of language, things like they dressed him in his firefighter's uniform. It covers the bullet holes. You would never know it unless you know, or unless you knew, which is just very elegantly written. I did, however, feel like all the beautiful writing wasn't connecting me to the character. It was connecting me to something else, either to the scene or to the atmosphere, but it wasn't connecting me to the protagonist. And that's what I needed to feel. Charlie, what did you think? I had a lot of feelings about this one. I I didn't love the, the opening section in italics. First of all, you know, with literary fiction, word choice is so incredibly important. And reading an early draft of literary fiction sometimes feels like, you know, we're still trying to figure out a way forward with that specificity of language. And for me, this still felt like a pretty early draft. For example, on the first page, the word kiss or kissing was used three times. And for a literary novel, like that matters, right? We just want to be so careful about all of our word choice and overuse and things like that. So I just didn't really feel like, number one, that first page was working. Number two, like it did it set the tone for what's to come, you know, and, and did it really 
you know, make things more clear for us? Not really. It kind of confused me more because it was kind of a sexual encounter with the world and the universe and the wind in a very like metaphorical way. And then we kind of had to like come screeching down to the ground in terms of like coming back to earth. So that was kind of my feelings on that. I would just, I just don't think we we need that section or, and I just don't, if we do need that section or the author thinks we need that section, this section's just not ready. I don't think. So the next section we get into the, you know, she's in the shower, as Cece said, um, you know, figure out she has her period, all of that sort of stuff. I really liked this. I really liked this. There's not a lot of books that talk about periods. And one of the first times I ever read a book about menstruation was Doris Lessing's The Golden Notebook. And I remember the first time I read it and I was like, I was in my 20s and I had never read in prose menstruation. Like how mind boggling was that? So I just, and this is on purpose, right? That this author is either trying to make us uncomfortable or reinforce the reality of being a woman, right? This happens to, you know, menstruating, the menstruating population for how many, you know, years of their lives, right? So this is a big deal, right? But I was very confused because I thought that this was her wedding day. And the reason is because white clothing, nervousness, pissed about her period on a very important day. I was very convinced this was a wedding day, actually. So I was quite confused and not in a bad way. I mean, it's okay to kind of, you know, take me one direction and turn me another direction, but intentionally, right? That's what we always say. This needs to be intentional. So I was just, I just wanted to be a bit more clear on all of that. I also, once I figured out that we're at a funeral, I, I'm still not clear on how the character feels about this death and the passing of the uncle. A lot of it is asking questions about looking at the cousins and saying like how much do they know did they know who my uncle was why did they say nothing did they pro- did they profit why were they silent did they encourage it and all of this is about other people right and i want to know going from this period scene which is a very intimate scene to a funeral scene it just felt disconnected and again i know this is literary fiction and part of this pitch was about dissociation and feeling um not connected to our bodies so a lot of this could be intentional but those are the things that really um that really stood out to me with this so yeah i think i think it's very interesting the other thing that i would say is that the pitch starts with casper hears the world will end on may 21st 2011 where is that in here right like that is our hook right and for literary fiction even if it's a small hook it's still a hook so I didn't really see how that I just think we could have leaned on that a bit more I think there's a lot of potential to kind of use that that countdown um, as something to really kind of hook this literary fiction I'm just going to add that there's a great novel called We Were Liars by E. Lockhart that does have a character who is like the character I don't think I'm ruining anything by saying that she she has amnesia a partial amnesia she's definitely disassociated there's all these mental illnesses that um, remove someone from themselves and their world and yet you still feel totally connected and immersed and and so perhaps read that for for like ideas on on how to do both on how to accomplish both because I think I think Carly diagnosed this correctly it is an issue of you want to accurately convey someone you know having just dissociation but then we want to connect so how do you do both it's possible because the greats do it so yeah and I can't teach you because I'm not one of the greats but but the greats are out there so you can read their novels Wonderful. Thanks, Cece. Right. Will you read us our second query letter? All right. Let's do this. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, I adore your podcast. 
I've been listening for a few months now and have learned an incredible amount about querying and craft. Thank you for taking the time to consider my work. Burden of Blood is an 80K word work of historical fiction with a literary bent that follows the life of Maria, a young Bavarian dirt farmer who is given away at the age of nine. The novel will appeal to fans of sweeping family epics like Min Jin Lee's Pachinko and stories mirroring traditional folklore like Ursula Heggie's The Patron Saint of Pregnant Girls. Interwoven with gruesome Bavarian folktales that dictate a woman's role as she ages through a patriarchal world, Burden of Blood spans decades of Maria's life and two world wars as Maria works as a servant in the homes of two single male physicians from whom she eventually inherits both estates. Though Maria marries and has a family of her own, she faces a lifelong fear of abandonment. This is a story about women, war, and new worlds. It explores the power of roots and the wounds that come with cutting them. I have a degree in English literature and psychology from Dalhouse University and have recently completed an intensive writing mentorship with Shalene Knight, author of Dear Current Occupant, winner of the Vancouver Book Award. A voracious reader, I run a blog called bookview.com and am working on polishing my second novel, A Moody Literary Romance. I live on Vancouver Island with my husband, young son, and two dogs. Thank you for your time and consideration, Candice. Well, thanks, Cece. Okay, Carly, what was your take on that query letter? I thought structurally it was very well done, just in terms of like visually, you know, the breakdown of the paragraphs and everything like that. You know, word counts on point. You know, the comps were really strong. The only thing we need to focus on here is the plot paragraph. I'm pretty confused about what the conflict is in terms of the present day. This falls into the category of we understand what the inciting incident is, and then we kind of know further on what's happening. You know, she inherits both estates of these male physicians. So I think that's all really interesting. We have like a bookmarking of kind of knowing what's going on or bookend, sorry, um, knowing what's going on, but we're really missing what's happening in the middle here. I love that, you know, she's a servant and then eventually inherits these estates but what about the families what about the dramas like there's just so much here that's not really touched on in the in the present sense so um yeah I just would like to know a lot more what's happening in the and I know this is an epic so I know it's difficult but to me that's what's going to connect us to the actual story itself so yes we get that it's an epic but you still have to tell us kind of what's happening in the epic and I thought the author bio paragraph was great so you know I I just think there's a bit of work to do in the middle that's all great Carly Cece what was your take I agree with Carly definitely like a strong query letter it's well framed the plot paragraph is what needs work so what's at stake other than her emotions is is my question and i don't mean to sound i mean she's she's a child who's taken so that's like a big deal or sent away which is potentially even worse but but since this is super common that becomes baseline when when reading something like that's the thing about historical fiction right like when you read about war war isn't enough conflict you need you know conflict within the backdrop of war when you read about this sort of thing you need a, a specific conflict and I almost wonder if we should know that she inherits both the states, especially like this, maybe save that, like add whatever the central present day conflict is and then hint at that or include that. But then I don't know what the climax is, right? Like, and that's, that's essential. A query letter must contain the the climax so that I go, oh my gosh, I wonder if the protagonist is going to, and then, you know, finish that sentence with a lot of specificity. I also want to say that I 
listened to Dear Current Occupant, and it's so good. So anyone out there who hasn't read or listened to this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful novel, please do. It's it's fantastically narrated, too. So it's absolutely a great novel. So thank you for sharing that. Wonderful, Cece. Carly, will you give us a bit of an overview of those opening pages? The opening starts quite abruptly. So the we find out on page one that this girl is being sent away. It's a very terse and tough scene, not a lot of love happening. It's not a lot of remorse or anything like that. They're basically telling the girl to get up, pack your bags, go get your breakfast. You're being sent away. That's kind of our opener. So one of the things we need here is a timestamp. So I, when I was uh, thinking about talking about timestamps again on the podcast, I would love for somebody to come up with a jingle for me. So because I have two kids, I'm like always singing nursery rhymes. So I came up with the tune to here we go around the mulberry bush. So here's where we need a timestamp, a timestamp, a timestamp. Here's where we need a timestamp to explain what's going on. Yay, this is the best. No one can say this podcast is not entertaining and that we don't work really hard to keep you engaged. Nursery rhyme for writers. This is perfect. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. This is an untapped market. Untapped market. (laughs) Okay. Now, back to the content. So I didn't really think she was eight years old. I wasn't convinced she was an eight-year-old. And I know, you know, obviously we can have a more of a a coming-of-age voice. This says historical fiction with a literary bent. So we know that she's she's young. Sorry, nine-year-olds, not eight. Um, But yeah, I still don't believe that she is nine years old. So it didn't... I wasn't convinced of that. I know that this is a, we're targeting an adult audience, but we still want to feel like, again, this character is the age that she is. My conflict internally about this project to start with is that we are starting with a very dramatic scene. Like a girl is getting kicked out of her house at the age of nine. And yet somehow I'm not seeing enough tension, even though this is a very dramatic scene. Like nobody's crying. Nobody is upset about this. Like, where's the siblings? Like, are they like, why aren't the siblings chasing down this cart saying like, bring our sister back? Like, it just seemed too easy. Even though it's a very dramatic scene, it just seemed too easy to me. There's no, you know, hiccups or hurt in terms of her getting in the car why didn't she stomp her feet you know why doesn't she run out to the barn and hop on her own horse and take off on her own journey you know what I mean like there's just so much that felt really easy about this that even though it's dramatic I just needed a little bit more tension so that was my, my main internal conflict about this is that it's a very strong inciting incident but I want her to be a child. I want her to be a child in this and I want her to have a childish reaction to what's happening to her. And I want to see somebody fight for her, whether it's a sibling or a pet or something like some sort of somebody's fighting for this child. Great, Carly. Thank you. Cece, I can see you're still busy grooving to Carly's singing. So um, when you when you're done with that, will you give us your take on the pages? That was really good. I'm still like dancing. You know, fun fact about me is that I forget that I'm in public sometimes and I just start bouncing to rhythm of whatever I'm hearing. And one time my sister and I joined the gym for like two days. And as soon as we joined the gym, she made me promise, can this be a space where you don't do the thing where you dance in public without realizing that you're dancing? It's really embarrassing. So yeah, and my sister's not someone to ask these questions. So my habit is pretty bad. Anyway, I echo Carly's, Carly's notes. The first paragraph to me needs to go. It's like a roundup. It's a roundup of Maria was nine years old on the day she was given away. That's just the way things were. Um, too many children reduced, too much work, take them in. I I would prefer to be immersed in scene right from the beginning, which we are right away, right after this paragraph, right? 
And I would prefer to witness Maria understand that she was being sent away slowly. Like I want to see the plot unfolding along with her emotions. Like I want the stages, like the confusion, shock, disbelief, anger, sorrow, longing, whatever, whatever emotions she's going to go through, because it's going to be a whirlwind. It was just too immediate. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, when Carly was saying, this is a dramatic scene, but I didn't feel tension. I think that's why it's because it was all like a wave that hits you as opposed to, you know, an unfolding of, of emotions, um, which is what happens in real life. You don't, you don't quite understand, especially when you get shocking news. Overall, it was strong, and I felt that we could have gone deeper when it comes to character development and emotionality. There were a few seeds that were planted, but then not watered. Here are a few examples. So one example is on page two when she tells her dad, I hate you, or she thinks I hate you. And I'm like, since she hates her father, maybe later in the pages, like page three or four, um, when she's writing away, she could comfort herself by thinking, you know, at least I'll never have to deal with whatever it is that the father does. That's so bad. Abandoned children, they learn to self-soothe. So it's something that, you know, she's already being neglected because she's one of many. It's something that she would know how to do probably. And there's also a hint to why she feels it's, she's being sent away, which is all because I spit a bowl of soup. So again, if she's thinking this because this is all in her thoughts, just like the I hate my dad thought, maybe she could connect this thought later in the pages, something like she'll promise to never spit soup again. Like she'll, she'll, she'll go get desperate and, pro- and tell her mom, mom, I'll never do it again, please. Or maybe if the point is to show her defiant personality, even at the, in the face of this huge, huge thing, maybe she could be like, yeah, I was right to spit the soup. Um, and I can and double down on what she did. I also felt that the dialogue needed a little bit of work. There's a line that says, we cannot afford to feed you and keep you here anymore. It sounded really formal. And I don't, I don't know. I, I just wanted it to be a, like less formal. It almost sounded like, like a journalist writing what was happening um, instead of someone actually speaking. I also had the question about siblings. I'm like, assuming she's one of many, right? So, you know, there's a part where she says, or she's thinking to herself, Maria, a threadbare tablecloth tossed in the basket for mending. Maria wondered who would take on that job. If she has siblings, this is a good place for us to to see her think it wouldn't be so-and-so because so-and-so doesn't have the steady hands or it would be this person who's always wanted that job or I don't know, something that shows the power dynamics between the siblings because it's always there, even when they're allies. There's a lot of good things here, like things like she has a snack and she says Maria wouldn't take it with her. The sweetness, the indulgence of sugar, cream and butter, that was for the good times. There's there, there, you know, a line where she mentions um, how her dad's hands are rough and calloused. There's there's a lot of good, but I wanted more specificity about the things she missed and about the things she anticipated in her new home. The second part is very important to honor the story forward rule. I'm supposed to be wondering about what's going to happen next, not just thinking about the cost of the present. So children fantasize, especially neglected children. It's common for them to disassociate, right? So I wanted to know if she was the kind to optimistically imagine that her new life would be better. And then she would specifically imagine a better life and whatever that means to her. Or perhaps she's the kind to catastrophize, right? And she'd be terrified about the things to come. Another thing that I would ask is, has this happened to anyone in her town or village or city or wherever she is? Because if it has, maybe she would wonder if she would meet up with this person, right? Like I remember being really, really young and my mom saying, oh, we're going to go to the United States 
And my friend had moved to the United States. So I thought that like, it was one place, like everyone is going to this one, like little small place, the United States. And I didn't realize that it was a country because I was too young. Again, when writing children, it's important for the character to lean into imagination because children are highly imaginative creatures. So she didn't feel imaginative to me. She felt very, very grounded. I get that it might be intentional to show that she's lost her innocence already at the age of nine, but I still think you can lean into imagination. So those are my notes. Awesome, Susie. Thank you. Right. I'm going to read the third query letter. Dear Miss Waters and Miss Lira, not long ago, a friend recommended the shit no one tells you about writing and taken with your helpful advice on Books with Hooks and Miss Murray's interviews, I've binged all the episodes. I'm reaching out to you about my 65,000 word contemporary YA novel, Keep Sweet, the story of a girl living in a polygamist cult in the American Southwest. It brings together elements of The Handmaid's Tale, Sister Wives, and current fiction such as God Shot by Chelsea Beaker in a story for and about teens. Trigger warning, mention of sexual assault. Patricia Warren is a 14-year-old living in the community. That's in quotation marks with her father, four mothers, and 16 siblings. The prophet, Uncle Timothy, controls all facets of the cult. He assigns girls as young as 16 to marry far older men with whom they will have numerous children. When he has a vision that Patricia will marry her 19-year-old cousin, she has no choice. Demanding submission of both body and soul and using pseudoscience to control her, the prophet sexually assaults Patricia under the guise of correcting her corrupted DNA. If she tells anyone, he will throw her twin brother out as a lost boy. Meanwhile, Patricia's parents believe they will avert her juvenile marriage. Her father, the community accountant, is cooperating with the U.S. government to build a tax evasion case against the prophet, hoping both to save himself from a prison term and to usher in an ethical leader. Smart but poorly educated, Patricia at first submits to her fate, but as she better understands the prophet's manipulation of community members, she joins forces with her twin brother, her older sister, and two good friends to free her family from the psychological and spiritual abuse of an evil man. I have had both fiction and nonfiction published in literary journals and anthologies. I've been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and included in Best Short Stories from the Saturday Evening Post-Great American Fiction Contest. A collection of my short fiction was published by Los Nitos Press in March 2021. I'm the managing editor for the journal Inlandia, A Literary Journey, and I also contribute articles to Southern California news groups, literary journals, which celebrates writers and their work. I have experience as both a high school teacher and teacher librarian. I'm the mother of three independent sons and live with my husband and two large rambunctious rescue dogs. Thank you for taking the time to review this query and for your support of readers and writers. Sincerely, Victoria. Okay, Carly, would you like to let us know what you thought of the query letter? This is one of these submissions where I actually really wish that the author was on the podcast because I have a lot of questions and I actually really like this and I probably will reach out to the author to figure out the answers to my questions. So 
I am most curious about is the comps and the positioning here. So it says it brings together elements of Handmaid's Tale, Sister Wives, and the current fiction such as Godshot by Chelsea Beaker in a story for and about teens. I am very curious about this wording of for and about teens because I know there's a lot going on just in terms of YA discourse and marketing, but positioning as a whole, talking about YA who is it for, you know, who reviews it and all of that sort of thing. So I feel like this author is trying to make a statement to say, I, I think this is book, this book is for teens, but I don't think it is. I think this is an adult novel. And firstly, because everything they comped is adult content and they actually missed a comp, which if they haven't read it, I will suggest that they do, which is the book of Essie by Megan McLean Weir. It's a phenomenal book and would be a, based on what I've read would be a very accurate comp. And even though that character is 17 years old, that main character, and it is quite a commercial novel, it was published by Knopf US. So I have a really hard time wrapping my head around specifically why this author feels that it is for and about teens. So that's kind of why I wish the author was here so I could so I could pick their brain. But overall, I think this is fascinating. This is a topic that I find very interesting. As I said, I've, I've read Book of Essie. Anything in this space having to do with cults and communes and communities, I find endlessly fascinating. I just finished last night the um, Lula Rich documentary about the Lula Rowe MLM cult community. So I'm just like endlessly fascinated with this. So I think this person did a really excellent job. I just need to talk to them about the positioning. Cece, what did you think? Strong agree. The seems like the themes, they're amazing, right? Like I, the thing about cults that I think we all love so much as agents, as readers, is that it's a really contained environment where the stakes are naturally high and everyone's like pushed to their psychological edge. So there's a lot in terms of inner life and a lot in terms of plot. And that's the sweet spot. So, so I was very intrigued. I wanted to know a whole bunch of things. I also, and this is you know probably embarrassing to admit, but I was like a huge big love fan when it was first airing it's a billion years ago. But I remember like loving that show because I was so fascinated. I was like, oh my gosh, this is a total other world. I do think it's really important to understand, and I'll, I'll skip to this since we're talking about how fascinating it is. In terms of the plot, the author paragraph, I wanted to know why she picked this theme, what her experience and or research is, because it's really important not to come across as fetishistic. We are dealing with child marriage, and it's easy to tackle a theme like this and to just make it seem like icky and like you're being a voyeuristic person. And it's 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 harder to do it in a way that's responsible. It's not even respectful, although that's part of it, but it's not. It's responsible, right? Like, I hope you've done your research. I hope that this is coming from a place of knowing what's out there because that's really, really important. And I think that you should add lines about that. I mean, you know, assuming that's the case, um, which I really hope it is. So I wanted, in terms of the plot paragraphs, I wanted more specificity on the climax. So there's a part where she says, joins forces with her twin brother, her older sister, and two good friends. I wanted to understand, like, how do they join forces? Do they infiltrate the inner workings of the community to pretend to be devout? I don't know, to gather evidence, to turn over, I don't know, whatever. Not that necessarily, but like I wanted the specificity on what their plan was going to be, how they were going to fight back. It helps set the tone. And more importantly, it prompts the reader to ask specific questions and to like fear for them. And I would also want a line alluding to the fact that like the prophet is actually like two steps ahead of them, perhaps something like, I don't know, they discover, and this is actually coming from Handmaid's Tale, 
But, you know, when they started investigating what's going on, they discovered that the prophet has a plan to expand the community, like to make things even worse, right? Because that just ups the stake. And I also think that, you know, I should note that the antagonist here is really clear. Like we know who the antagonist is and that's not common in query letters, unfortunately, and it should be. So great, great job making that clear. Great job telling me, you know, who is the X versus Y? Like I know who the X is. I know who the Y is. And that's really, really important. What was your take, Cece, on the positioning? Do you agree with Carly that it's more an adult book than a YA novel? I absolutely do because of the comps. Obviously, the tone of the book is essential to know whether it's YA or adult, and all we've read is five pages. But like Handmaid's Tale, Sister Wives, like I, like, I don't, I, I, I do think that this could be adult, especially because I don't know what the point of view situation is. Like maybe we'll get more than Patricia. I, I don't know. I think, I think it could have crossover appeal potentially. But for me, if she hadn't written YA in the beginning, I would be certain that this is an adult book. Like were it not for those two letters, I would be 100% certain. And if anyone asked me, do you think this is YA? I'd be like, of course not. So so this is probably a sign. Great. Thanks, Cece. Okay, Carly, going to the pages, will you give us a bit of an overview there? We don't always say a book definitely starts in the right place, but I do feel like this book starts in the right place. So we start off, says chapter one, waiting for the prophet. So she has been called to the prophet's basically little office where he sets up to explains a little bit about, you know, their communities called New Green Creek. And it kind of just like explains a little bit about the setup, which I thought was really well done, right? There's a, because we're doing some world building here, there's a huge temptation to kind of want to world build, but we didn't, right? We just got a, a not, we just need, want a need to know basis. And they did exactly that, which was great. So we find out that says Patricia, Uncle Timothy said with a broad smile, this is a happy day. God has revealed your eternal partner to me. You will wed next year to Travis Lyman, sealed for all time and eternity. And this whole scene is just explaining this. And she says, Uncle Timothy, Travis is my first cousin, a full first cousin, not half. So part of this drama in this opening scene is her trying to get her point across. He, the prophet, doesn't give a shit, basically brushing her off, looking at his phone as he walks out the door. And she needs to go home, explain to her mother what's happening. We find out that the mother has some sister wives and she's pissed because the sister wives don't do shit and she's the one doing all the work. So that's kind of our opening scene. I barely had any notes here. I had, I highlighted a line and wrote beside it puke because the line is some man in the community opens his window and says to the girl old enough to bleed old enough to butcher she heard as the window went up and I just wrote puke because it sets really sets the tone for how disgusting and patriarchal this society is and we feel for her right like we really feel like you know she's a a lamb being led to slaughter essentially Cece, what do you think? Agree. Really agree with everything you're saying. I would add that I was curious about how she felt about so many things. And I think that that curiosity is a really great sign because it means that she, you know, the author will have a few pages to, you know, the, the, the pages that come after this is when the author can clarify things for me. So for example, right in the first paragraph, we see her scanning the walls of his office because she's waiting for the prophet. Viewing the many photos of women and children, fixing her gaze on the panoramic shot, blah, blah, blah. So I thought that 
I'm, I wondered to myself, is this intentional that she's describing this as like many photos of women and children? Like I, if, if she's a person in that community, it wouldn't be many photos of women and children. It would be like so-and-so, you know, like she would lean into the specificity unless she doesn't know who they are. Like, I, and then I had all these questions in my head as well. When she mentions, again, she's still looking at the pictures, the wife who had run off. I'm like, that's kind of a big deal running off. So what emotion is tied to this? Is it shame or envy or something else? And then, so I had that, mo- I had that, that, that specific note of, it's almost like she feels like an outsider when she's offering descriptions. And I didn't know whether this was intentional or not. And I was curious to understand small things like the pattern that all women in New Green Creek used to make their dresses that felt like a journalist describing an article. Like this journalist went spent some time in this community and then she is describing what the community looks like. Also, second paragraph. There's two questions at the end of that paragraph. Why was she summoned to the prophet for a girl of 14? Was there only one answer? So I would rephrase that instead of use, instead of the questions, use emotions, like make it not a question, something like her stomach was in knots. There was only one reason why a girl of 14 was, would be summoned by the prophet. It just, the, the, the rhetorical questions aren't, aren't doing anything here. I also don't think we need the, the, the backstory. There's a backstory on why someone is a Holly fool. And there's a backstory on why, what was it? I think it's something about Aaron. Um, and and we, don't, we don't need it. Like we don't need any backstory. It's very small. So it's not a big deal. If you want to keep it, keep it. Maybe it's important for how the pages continue. But I I just felt, I felt like it was getting in, in, in the way of the story. Things like, so on page, what page am I? Three. Patricia thought of how nice it would be to have a second home of one's own away from the ocean of family. What 14-year-old thinks like that? This is why, like, I, you know, I don't, I don't understand how her mind is, how it is. And I'm curious to know why. Um, it seems very mature. Still on the same page. 14 and engaged to 19-year-old Travis, who never seemed very fond of her. The language, fond, and even things like 14 and engaged to 19-year-old. I don't, I don't know. I don't think that's how a teenager thinks. Although, who knows? Who knows how her mind has been shaped, right, in this community? And then on page four, the prophet asks her, do you doubt God's purpose? And she, there's a line that says, Patricia realized she did. So for me, I want to know, I want more. I want another line after that or before that, explaining whether this is the first time she realized she doubted God's purpose or perhaps she had for a while or, or shock at her crisis of faith. Faith is an important theme here. So I don't think it needs to be properly introduced so it can be properly developed. Also, this is very important. And it's similar to the note I gave in the previous, both Carly and I actually had for the previous story. What about her siblings and or friends? Is she the first of her friends to get married? Because if so, she would think about that. I'm the first of my friends. And maybe she she likes that or doesn't like that. Is she the last? Like teenagers compare all the time. I don't care whether they live in cults or big cities or wherever else. They compare. Also, does she have a crush? If she has a crush, she'll be disappointed that she's not marrying her crush. Was she hoping to marry her crush? I kept having all these very, very specific questions, which is a good thing because I would have kept on reading to to find out. I also have a new new golden rule for the podcast. You know how I always say I don't like thoughts in italics because I don't. I usually think I usually cut all of them whenever I'm working with my clients. You seldom need thoughts in italics, especially in the first person. This is not first person. So thoughts in italics have to follow the rule of dialogue. They have to do at least two things. There's a whole bunch of thoughts in italics here that are only doing one thing. They're conveying the thought. So from now on, if you're going to add thoughts and italics in order to be in keeping with the podcast's golden rules, you have to do at least two things. Uh, explain what is being left unsaid, developing character, something else. 
it's taking a real estate to tell me things like, nice that the prophet gets to have a dog. I wish I had a dog. And also, where did Sparky go? Sparky is the dog they had to give away. I, I was very sad about that. Oh, another thing. She describes people by introducing them in a journalistic way. Melody, her third and final sister wife. And there's, there's other examples of this that I was highlighting as I was reading. It doesn't seem very natural. I would, I would find a more elegant way. It's harder to do because it's so easy to be like, oh yeah, my father, John, or my sister, Mary, but that's not how people think. And that's more of article writing than the novel writing. So I would, I would revise for that. Okay. I just wanted to add one more thing about what Cece was saying about the, that lack of teen, like sibling comparison or friend comparison or crushes, like the lack of that on the page also speaks to the fact that I don't believe this is for teens. Okay. Um, for those of you who haven't listened to the Lauren Groff interview yet, please listen to that. She has very interesting take on dialogue and why she uses so little of it and the work she believes dialogue needs to do. And that'll apply to internal dialogue as well, direct quotes of a character's thoughts as well. Right. So that's it for today's Box of Hooks. Let's go to today's guest. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, 
The shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest is the author of The Second Home. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, the Sun Magazine, and in various literary journals, including Glimmer Train, Pleiades, and Hobart. She holds a PhD in creative writing from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and lives in Madison, Wisconsin with her family. It's my pleasure to welcome Christina Clancy. Christy, welcome to the show. We have been friends on social media for ages and ages it feels like I have this habit of stalking writers that I love and now I get to chat to you in real life and for the listeners we do this on zoom so we are looking at each other on video so when I sound ridiculously excited it's because I'm looking at an author and I'm seeing their face and it feels like I'm actually meeting them in real life hugs (laughs) (laughs) absolutely well your book recently came out your second book right yep shoulder season yes um and that just recently came out and I absolutely loved it can you tell our listeners just a little bit about it no spoilers we will discuss elements of crafts and things like that but try not to give too much of the actual book away sure well I mean people will think of this book as a playboy book because it is set in a playboy resort in Wisconsin believe it or not there was a playboy resort in the land and milk and bunnies Uh, that was open between 1969 and 1981. And I wanted to write a book that kind of explored that weird world of young women who became Playboy bunnies who were expected to be wholesome and sweet and um, and effervescent, but at the same time were expected to be sexy and um, you know meet the the expectations of the patrons who were men who wanted you know somebody like you know who's gorgeous and voluptuous to step up to the table. So I wrote about that, but really for me the book a lot is about aging and how we look back on experiences as we get older. So I I focus on a woman named Sherry Taylor. She's fifty nine. She's about to return home to where the Playboy Resort was um, to face up to some tragedy that had happened in her past. But she she's really um, hobbled by this experience that she had when she was kind of caught up in the heady days of her youth. As so many of us have ha- had that experience, especially before there was social media. So she comes back to East Troy, which is her hometown, the small town she's from, and she finds out that things that happened in the past weren't exactly the way she thought that they were. And that the things that she was blaming herself for from the time when she worked at, as, when she was very naive and made a lot of bad decisions, some of them actually paid off for her, some of the bad decisions. And then, you know, how she moves on and how she's able to let go of the past. Yeah. And how did you find out about this? Because 
I was shocked to see that it was a resort, a family resort. Firstly, I was like, what the hell? How do you have a, a you know, Playboy resort that's a family resort? And you threw all these little tidbits in it that made it so interesting, despite the story. I mean, the story is amazing. The characters are amazing. But there's this backdrop to it that just comes alive. I mean, there's bits about nuns who go skiing in their habits. And there's bits about the elephants who like got led into the water to die just in front of, you know, where this resort was, et cetera. Were these things that you just picked up in your research? Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, I, growing up, so I grew up in Milwaukee, which is about half an hour away from the resort. And I knew from my friends at school, especially the guys that they had gone skiing there and that bunnies would serve them hot chocolate. That's all I knew. Um, but aside from that, I always thought it was kind of a, a risque place. You know, I thought it was very Bacchanalian. And people, when I started my research, they would say, oh, weren't the bunnies prostitutes or exotic dancers? And I was learning so much about how hard that job was and that the women that, you know, no one's born a bunny. You know, the women who had got this job, they were from small towns and they were learning the, you know, how to work the floor the way anyone would work any job. And they didn't have very many good options for that work. So, you know, I, I, I kind of came across how staid it actually was and how many rules there were and how hard it was. And for a while, I was like, what am I going to write about? Like, how am I going to make a story out of this? It's kind of boring. Like they, they were rolling silverware into napkins you know, in the middle of the winter. But um, then I found out like any job that stuff went on in the background, people found ways to work around the rules. They did stuff after work, but you know, that we did that at like the Dairy Queen where I worked too. So it's not like it was just because it was a Playboy resort. Yeah, like reading things about how they had to practice the bunny perch because they weren't allowed to sit right in front of guests. They weren't allowed to sit. They had to serve cocktails doing a bunny dip. So they would like put their, they, they would stand almost like you're about to do a squat and they'd lean back to reach across. You know, they wanted to extend the experience that guests would have with their server because part of the reason they're there is to look. So they needed to make it drawn out. So the women would, would take the glass and they'd put it down. Then they'd take liquor and they'd put the liquor in. And then they'd, they'd mix the drinks there. The bartenders didn't mix the drinks for them. If you wanted a gin and tonic, it was, it took a while to get, you know? So um, it, it really was. And they were wearing three inch stiletto heels and the costumes were two sizes too small. So one of the bunnies told me that if you were built wrong, and I've, I actually have a costume. I wish I had it here to show you. Um, she gave me her old costume oh, wow. uh, when I have events, I can show it, but there are these like stays in the back. And she said, if they hit you in the wrong spot, you'll get kidney infections. So a lot of the women had to leave for that reason. So it was a really physically demanding, hard job. And you'd work, you know, two, three shifts at a time. And I mean, I'm just kind of interested in women and work and women and leisure. And, you know, when we get to have one or the other, so it was a really fascinating place to explore. Yeah. And just reading about the world, I found it really, really fascinating. I went to Milwaukee for the first time in 2017 for the launch of my debut novel. And if anyone from Boswell Books is listening, if Daniel's listening, hi, everyone. I love that bookstore. Love it, love it, love it. And, and there's a ton of bookish people in Milwaukee who I absolutely adore as well, who run the most amazing events. And this is not something I 
would have associated with that part of the world that also was really fascinating from that point of view. I love reading books that the story captures me, the characters capture me, but there's also like this, you know, true story backdrop that I'm learning about in the process as well. So let's start on your research process for this. Was it a case of the story interested you and then what, you tracked down a whole bunch of ex-bunnies to interview them? How did you go about it? Well, I wish I could say that I started this project thinking that it was going to involve research because I was in a one-year contract. And then I, I thought, well, no, no problem. I'll be able to write a book in a year. And then I got a concussion. I walked into a door. So like for a while, I was like, I couldn't even read. I couldn't write. And during that time, it was actually great because I was thinking about the book that I wanted to write, which was set, it was on a lot of the the bones of that original book are in the book now, but I wanted to write about a story that was, took place on our lake and I was, and there's a tragedy that happens on a lake. So I knew that was going to happen, but I thought, well, how did the family get here? Why would they be on this lake in this part of the world? And then I knew that there were bunnies who would party on our lake. So I thought maybe one of the moms used to be a Playboy bunny. So I started interviewing one of the bunnies and then I just like, it was so interesting. I couldn't stop finding information. And then one day I just was like, this is going to be my book. I'm just going to have to write a book about this because it sucked all the oxygen out of the other story that I wanted to tell because it's so interesting, this weird world. Then I had to ask my editor if I could do that because, you know, my first book took place at a summer home in Cape Cod. (laughs) I was like, this is quite a change to write about, you know, Playboy Bunny in 1981 in Wisconsin. So, but she was totally game for it. And that's how it started. So then I just uh, researched mostly first by just talking to people um, in East Troy, where our cabin is, there are plenty of people who love to wax nostalgic about the resort. Like you just say you're working on a project and they light up and they want to tell you everything. Like one guy's like, Oh, I dated a woman who was a Playboy bunny. And you know, the best thing or the worst thing about her is she would never shave her legs because they had to wear two pairs of tights. So what was the point? You know, <laughs> just the details, I'd like write them down furiously. It was really, really fun. It it was hard to know when to stop researching and start yeah. writing. Though. And you know, the best thing about my book was that I was on that deadline. I had to make a hard stop. And then I'd, I'd just go with the story. And then I also became very conscious of when I didn't want to know too much. You know, people keep asking me if I talked to Christy Hefner. And I didn't talk to her on purpose. She would have been fascinating. And I'm sure she would have had a lot of interesting things to say. But I would have become really worried about like the legal angle, right? Can I write this? Can I not? And I knew that it would stymie the story. So I had to set up boundaries of like what I wanted to know, what was going to be too much at what point should invention just take over. And um, I, I didn't need to be too beholden to other people's stories. Yeah. But the devil's in the details. Like when you can put in those details, like the two pairs of stockings and not shaving their legs and things like that, that's when the story really comes alive. It's in, in those kinds of details. And just for our listeners, what Christy has just said is so true because I know when I started writing, I was, and I don't know if this is a South African thing or what it is, because I'm not a shy person, but I felt like I was imposing on people if I reached out to ask them questions about certain things in the process of research. And I really had to build up something to get over that. And obviously, those of you who are journalists have no problem with that. But, you know, for the rest of you, you feel like you're imposing. And honestly, sometimes people are desperate to talk. They just want somebody to listen to these stories because there's fa- their family 
families have heard them a thousand times and they're quite honestly bored of them. And, uh, we, you know, to just share this information with the writer. So never be intimidated to reach out to people. The worst that they can say is no, they're not going to share their stories or no, they don't want to help you or they don't have time. But, you know, it's it's amazing that, Christy, you just got people who were, you know, desperate to share all these details with you. Yeah, one well, interestingly, so one of the bunnies I talked to had worked there for four years, which is kind of like a land speed record for bunnies. You know, most most bunnies didn't make it that long. So she was, she had a wealth of details and it was nobody in her family wants to hear her stories about being a bunny. Her daughter doesn't want to talk about it. Her daughter's, you know, like, I don't want to hear about that. It's embarrassing. I can't believe you did that. So I think for her, not only did she get to tell me her stories, but now it's part of a book. And she's so excited that it's there. And you're right that we worry sometimes that people are going to feel uncomfortable about us sharing details. And I think with both my books, The Second Home took place in an actual house that I grew, that I spent a lot of time growing up in. And the woman who owned it, when I told her that the book was actually coming out, I was so nervous. Like I couldn't eat for a week. I was like, what am I going to do? I can't change the location of this house. And she was like, oh, that's awesome. That's so much fun to have my house in a book. And I thought she'd feel just the opposite. Yeah. And remember, you can always, you know, disguise people's identities. If, you know, they, a lot of people are prepared to give you information, but perhaps they don't, you know, want their children to be embarrassed. I think it's freaking amazing. You know, it's, I think it had to take a hell of a lot of courage to do a job like that at that point. And I know that women then didn't think of it at all as feminist, you know, but I think there's something really kick-ass about a woman who has the kind of courage to do something like that. And it's a pity that her family doesn't want to listen to those stories because they've obviously informed who she is today. It's a part of her history. It's a part of who she is. So I think it's amazing that you kind of captured that for her and so that those stories don't die with her. How did you first find the bunnies to interview? So for our listeners, is it a case of you go on Facebook and you're like, does anybody know a bunny? Or is it you asked around the area and people knew ex-bunnies? How did that happen? Well, first of all, I just have to say there are ex-bunnies all over Southeastern Wisconsin. That's one fun thing that I found out about this area because they'd work just for the summer usually. So there were a lot of people, you know, in the 12 years the resort ran who uh, wore the ears and tail. The problem is a lot of them changed their names, you know, and um, they got married and they were hard to find. But I started originally a whisper campaign, you know, like people would say to me, like, there's an ex-bunny in my book club. And I was like, you don't have to whisper. It's okay. <laughs> that was 40 years ago. You know, um, people, people like think it's so illicit, like, you know, so wild. Scandalous. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then they're, you know, they're, they're like, when you meet them, they're like in Bible studies and <laughs> just like normal people. So I found some people that way, but a lot of people, it's hard to get them to call you back. You know, they'll, they'll be like, oh yeah, sure. I'd love to talk to you. And then like, maybe they back away from that or it's just hard schedule wise. And I was on a deadline, but then fortunately with Pam, she was just totally ready to meet with me and share a lot of her stories. And then I also met with some other bunnies and then I would find ancillary people. Like there's a scene where Sherry walks out on the floor and she's um, the, for the first time and her shoulders are bared and she's in the costume and people are looking at her and it's winter in Wisconsin. And I was like, what is that like? What does it feel like? Cause I, I never really exposed myself when I was younger. You know, I was always wearing like my preppy sweaters, you know, like it was really, um, you know, very like I, I dress more conservatively. So I interviewed a woman I know who's a Hooters girl and just the story she told, like there's one kind of gross detail about guys who would take off their socks. Like they'd have fetishes. 
and they'd give their dirty socks to her and like pay her to hold on to them for a, for a week and then give them back. That came from her. Like when I put that in the book, so you can find people who have experiences that are different to, to see what, what it feels like to be in a certain situation. So that was really helpful too. For the listeners as well, Facebook and things like that, social media is a really great way to kind of spread the word of that, you know, just say, I am looking for a criminologist or I'm looking for a EMT or I'm looking for this or I'm looking for that. And, you know, people share it and they share it again. And someone will always reach out. Every time I post on Facebook that I need to do research with one person or another. I mean, with my first book, I was looking for a pilot from the 60s who flew a very specific route and I managed to find him, someone who could give me that information. And he was so happy to talk. And he even bought a copy of the book because his name is in the acknowledgements, even though I know he will never read the book. It's not his kind of book. So there's, there's that as well. So let's talk about your process, Christina, in terms of revisions in terms of second and third drafts. But before we get there, something I want to speak about is your prologue, because something that we're always speaking about on the podcast that the agents are always speaking about is they, you know, a lot of agents don't like prologues. A lot of editors don't like prologues. So you begin this book with a prologue. Was it there all the time or was it something that came in a later revision? Yeah, I, I'll die on the prologue hill. I um, <laughs> I really felt this book needed a prologue because it's a coming of age story. And, you know, they, they really, you know, play up the sex, drugs and rock and roll. But you need to know at the beginning that she's going to be OK. You know, otherwise it changes the whole way you're reading that book. And so I felt like I needed to do that. And I've heard another writer. I wish I could remember who it was, but I thought about this. She said, a prologue is fine as long as all the questions that you bring up, the dramatic questions that you bring up in the prologue are answered by the end of the book. And so I actually wrote the prologue and then I went back and I made sure like all those little teasers that I had, the little characters I might've introduced, all of that circles back. So I felt like I, I needed the prologue. It, I don't know. It just feels to me like it, it was kind of organic. Plus it went with my project. You know, my project is about looking back and memory and reminiscing and a prologue seems to suit that kind of book. I'm not saying it's great for every book, but I think it's right for this book. And and also if you hadn't started it with a prologue, let's say you'd done that sort of as a chapter one or whatever instead, that means that everything then becomes pure backstory as she she looks back. And then of course you've got sort of backstory issues, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas if you start with the timeline that uh, a prologue that's in the future, you know, it's kind of like a flash forward to, you know, it, it doesn't feel like you're going into backstory. It's like it starts now, but then the rest of it still feels so incredibly immediate as well. I love what you just said. Cause uh, so something that really messed up my writing in the best way was I studied with Rick Moody and I remember he said, backstory's dead. You can't write backstory. And I took that to heart. You know, this is about 10 years ago, eight years ago. And I thought, oh no, I've been writing backstory. And is that bad? And then I started writing stories that only moved forward. And that's a good exercise to try to get yourself to do that because it does create more momentum in your manuscript. I think when you're not always like doing like a dream sequence from a soap opera, you know, where you, you need to fill in something that happened. But 
I felt like with the prologue, you're exactly right. It allowed me to, to not have to go into too much backstory. There's still some parts of my book that I read a little guiltily knowing I've got some backstory in there and I'm like, sorry, I just have to do it. There's a lot you need to jam in, but you don't want it to seem ham-fisted. Like you're saying to the reader, reader, you need to know this. You want it to feel like it, it hits the reader in an organic way. Absolutely. They get the information when the character needs them to know, you know, the, the information. And I was the same as you. I also had this thing because, I mean, we're creative writing instructors. And so we kind of teach our students don't get stuck on backstory because the problem is with emerging writers is that they load up like chapter one, chapter two, chapter three with all of this backstory because they feel like it's something the reader needs to know in order to care about the character. And so we say, don't do that. And then of course they get to the point where they're too terrified to include any kind of backstory. But I mean, the book that I've just finished writing now is it, it starts in like 1934 to present day and uh, things that happened in the past were extremely important. So there's a lot of backstory. So my creative writing students are going to be like, what the hell, man, you told us no backstory and your book is full of backstory, but some stories need them. I also think backstory is you have to be really careful if you're in a writing group or you're teaching and you're on, a, you know, we're talking earlier about first drafts and second drafts. And one of the things I always tell my students is your first draft is for you. Your second draft is for your reader. So maybe the backstory is important to have so you know it. So you get it down, you put it in your document. And then when you're editing, then you can start thinking, do I need this here? Can this just come through anyway? Can this? Can I tell this through dialogue with some characters? So I think the backstory has a role for you as a writer, but you shouldn't be too critical of that early on. Your second draft, you can clean all that up. Yeah, totally. And let's talk about third drafts because, you know, the thing that emerging writers make the mistake of doing, and this is why agents that I speak to say their busiest time of year for submissions is December, because mm -hmm. that is straight after NaNoWriMo and everyone writes a book and they're like, I wrote this book and they submit it. And I mean, of course, it's a complete symbolic mess because they've spent a month and they wrote a book and they've done no revisions, etc. So, you know, most of my students, I get them to understand, okay, you're going to need like at least one, you know, or two revisions or whatever, but let's talk about that third revision of a draft. You know, let's talk about the, the, the way a manuscript evolves during all of those revisions. So do you have a specific process like draft it and then revision one is paying attention to structure and revision two pays attention to plot or do you revise everything all at once? How do you do it? I revise everything. I'm not a very meticulous person. Like I, I'm meticulous in my head. Like I don't, I don't write a lot of things down, but I think one thing that's really helpful with the, it's, it's nice to work with an editor because with my book, when I got to the third draft, I realized that there was a huge part of the book. Like my, I think my editor, I, I think this is what she said. She's like, this is like Pride and Prejudice set in a Playboy resort. Like there were just way too many storylines. And she's like, what if we just focus on Sherry's journey? Sherry had a sister who's, who is going to go to jail. Like I had this whole Whoa. other story. And it was amazing. I, it's so hard to cut that much out of a story. But even when you're on the third draft, you have to be willing to say structurally, I need to get rid of this. And I think your third draft is when you see the structure. And you're probably like this now too. I can't read anything or watch any movie without seeing like an x-ray of it, yeah. of how that, how it's put together. So that's when you're, you have to be willing to just still make radical changes. 
But I cut 13 pages, like right off the bat when she said that. And I was amazed. It didn't change anything. I realized all that stuff was just junk. It was like cleaning a closet and the easy stuff that was, you know, you get, you know, you need to get rid of. But to be honest, I think it's easier to cut the junk, have too much junk and then cut it out, then have this very sparse kind of story. And then you realize, oh, shit, there's not enough junk in it. And then you've got to try and throw things in it and try and make it work. So I must be honest, I'm the same as you. I'll kind of load up too many characters, too many subplots, too many additional people and then pairing it down afterwards, which I find easier because some people, you know, go with a very minimalistic approach and then there's not enough meat there. And then to me, it's harder to put things in afterwards. Well, it's also, I think um, when you get later on in your draft, you start, I, I find this with essays and with short stories and with a novel, it just takes longer to get to this point. But I think once you have enough done and you've thought about your, your work enough, that's when you start thinking, what's this actually about? What's the heart of the story? I thought my book was done, but I had this innate sense that it wasn't hitting an emotional chord that needed to be hit. And at the time, my husband's father was dying and I was thinking about his attachment to East Troy. And I started, I remember I just wrote this scene where one of the characters talks about East Troy and I just was bawling like my, just, you know, I was just a mess and my son was in the other room and I went in and I said, I figured out what my story's really about. And like, that's kind of cool when, but it takes a really long time. You shouldn't be too hard on yourself in your first or second, or even your third draft. If you're like, it's not there yet, but once you figure out the heart of your story, like where that beating heart is, that's when you know you're going to be able to publish a book that you're going to be proud of. That's resonant, you know, with other people and, and has some universal themes that matter. 100%. Like I feel like at the beginning, your, your, your first draft is kind of like this block of marble and then you're chipping away at it and you're chipping away at it and you're eventually going to reveal whatever was inside this marble that needed to come out in terms of sculpture. And it takes all the chipping for you to get there. I don't think like you, you know, upfront what, what was inside and what needed to be released. And I think if you try too much to write to that specific purpose, it starts to feel heavy handed. It feels like you're smacking the reader over the head with these themes that you wanted to explore. Whereas I find if they come out more organically, you know, they don't feel like the reader's kind of been grabbed by the collar and shaken and told, this is what my story's about. Totally. Yeah. And it helps to talk to friends about it too. Like you'll start getting it, like people say, what's your book about? And then you start talking about it and you're like, you know, maybe it's actually about this. Like kind of like when you have book clubs and people will hit on something and you're like, oh, that's really interesting. Like that's actually what I was trying to do. And I didn't even know it. I, that's why I love speaking to book clubs. I promise you my book clubs tell me time and again, what my books are about. I have no idea until I've spoken to about 10 book clubs. And then I'm like, okay, these are the themes of my novel because they, you know, they translate my own book back to me, which I absolutely, which I absolutely love as well. It's so much fun. I love doing book clubs. And that's something for the aspiring writers out there. It's something you need to get used to is, is speaking to uh, readers about your book and about your work, etc. But for me, where I find, like with this last book, I figured out what it was about when I had to defend it to one of the people in my writing group. Hi, Kira. Uh, we were having a discussion about some of the pages and there were some things, you know, that she didn't particularly like. And we got into a bit of a 
heated debate about it. And she was like, well, I don't think these need to be here. And, you know, often if somebody says that to me, I'm like, oh, that's fine. Okay, I can take it out. But this particular thing, like I got really defensive about it. And I was like, hell no, that that is not going. And she was like, why? And then I started to defend it, you know, and then I realized, okay, if I feel so strongly about it, this is what, you know, this book is about. And it was a wonderful exercise because it helped crystallize it for me in my own mind what it was about. And then you go to your next draft. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then and you, you go to that. Yeah. <laughs> and then probably everything changes in the next draft. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, half an hour is up. I don't know how this happened. Do you have some words of wisdom for anyone who's going through that revision stage ahead of perhaps submitting to agents? Yeah, I think it's not um, despairing. Although that's not really true because despairing truly is part of the process. Like every writer, you kind of have to despair. It means you care about your manuscript and, and it's hard to write. Um, and just knowing that it's going to take a lot of work and that if it doesn't come out the way you want it to in the first draft, it doesn't mean it's because you're a bad writer. It just means you're wrestling with a lot of stuff. You still have a lot of work to do. I took for granted how hard it was to write a manuscript until I had to revise the second home over and over again. And then when I was working with my editor and I had no idea that writing a book was that hard. People think, oh, I'll write a book and I'll make a million dollars, which by the way, you're not going to make a million dollars. <laughs> but yeah. it's you no, know, it's never that easy. It's not easy for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the thing about great writers. They write this amazing book and we read it and we just go, oh my word, this is just so amazing. And you know, you can go one or two ways. You can despair and go, I will never write anything this good. So what's the point? Or you can go, wow, this is easy. They've made it look easy. I can, I can do it. I mean, I've just finished reading um Maggie Shipstead's Great Circle. And oh my word, I adored that book so much. And it's part made me despair that I will never write anything that good. And it's part sort of encouraged me. But yeah, that that is the great thing about brilliant writing. But we never see those writers first drafts. And I read at the back in her acknowledgments, I mean, the book now I think is 500 and something pages, but she wrote in her acknowledgments how the book started off a thousand pages um, and her editor helped her bring that down. So she almost had to halve that novel. So that first draft must've been messy as all hell. And that's something we never see, you know, we just see the finished work. Yeah. Just, I mean, messiness is okay. And recursiveness is necessary. So maybe those are, that's my parting wisdom. Awesome. Thank you, Christy. (laughs) I really, really appreciate it. For our listeners, shoulder season's absolutely brilliant. Christy, we hope to have you on the show again. It's been so lovely chatting with you. Thank you so much for sharing all of that wisdom with us. Oh, thank you. I'm such a fangirl. I truly listen to your show all the time. It's just wonderful. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The Beta Reader Matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up.
This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at CeceLira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at CeceLira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.